Have you ever been in a courtroom setting? Several years ago, I served as a member of a jury, and it is a very serious feeling when you walk into that courtroom, and as a member of the jury, you know that this person's guilt or innocence kind of rests on you a little bit, that you have a voice in that. And then there's the other side, and there's the, the people of the prosecution, and people who feel like they've been wronged, and they're looking to you to decide what is just. And so there's a seriousness to the whole thing. There's the judge who is summoning you and dismissing you and, and it's a very intense kind of a feeling. Well, as we kind of jump back into our series together for the 757, we're getting back into the minor prophets. And as we do, the prophet Micah is going to invite us in to this courtroom setting. But before we get there, I just want to kind of remind ourselves where we've been because we've taken a little break. We've looked at four minor prophets so far. The first two, OJ, Obadiah and Joel, guilty, innocent. When did they prophesy? We don't really know. But what we do know is Obadiah, he spoke mainly to Edom because of Edom's treatment of Judah and how Edom didn't treat Judah well. And so there's a punishment, there's a judgment coming on Edom, but that judgment foreshadowed a judgment for all nations. And then there's Joel. And with Joel, you have this locust plague and, and this idea of what true mourning over sin ought to look like, how we should rend our hearts, not our garments. Then we looked at Hosea, two northern kingdom prophets, Hosea and Amos. Hosea, he's the one who has this unfaithful bride, Gomer. But God uses that picture of this unfaithful bride to describe his relationship with Israel and the lengths that he would go to to be able to one day reclaim Israel. Then, Amos. And Amos, he's that guy from the southern kingdom who's a shepherd herder who makes his way to northern kingdom Israel. And he prophesies to northern kingdom Israel in order to get their attention. He goes from nation to nation to nation to nation. And then he zeroes in and he really lays the hammer down on Israel. Why? Well, primarily because of injustice. And so now we come to Micah. And in many ways, Micah is the southern kingdom complement to northern kingdom Amos and his prophecy. A lot of the same material they're going to use. They're going to talk about injustice and poor leadership and these types of things. And we'll catch that this morning as we kind of jump in and out of the courtroom. Let's go ahead and get started. We're going to jump in in Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Micah, he writes, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming down out of his high place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? 
Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return." For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So Micah begins and he introduces himself, where he's from, the time in which he's from. He gives us the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. That's who he's writing to. He doesn't mention the kings of the northern kingdom because they're not from the Davidic line. So they're somewhat unimportant. And he's not primarily talking to the northern kingdom anyway. But he begins then by inviting all of creation into this courtroom. Everyone and everything will see how God judges because in this courtroom, God is both the prosecuting attorney and the judge. So how do you know he's going to be fair? Well, God's going to do everything in the light. He's going to invite everybody in. All of creation can witness how God prosecutes and how he judges. So there can be no accusation, no just accusation that God is not fair, that he is not patient, that he is not good, that he is not just. And so it's out in the open for all to see. And they all see that, yes, God is just, but he's more than just. He's been so patient. He's been so good. And so as Micah is painting this picture of God, God enters the courtroom. He leaves his high place of heaven and he steps into this courtroom to judge. And he's painting this picture. Micah, he wants Israel, he wants Judah to understand that God sees that he's there, that he's the one who's going to prosecute all this. And so as he paints this picture of God's presence coming, he wants them to feel that. Have you ever felt God's presence? How would you describe it to someone? You know, sometimes when you hear people describe the presence of God, they describe it like a wave that just kind of comes over them or a, or a tug on their heart just to get them to do something. But you know, usually when we describe God's presence, it is in these gentle types of terms. The, the wave, it's like a breeze, but, it, but it's gentle. It's not a tsunami that just comes and destroys and knocks you down. And, and it's a gentle tug. It's not this knockdown, drag out of here kind of thing. No, it's a, it's a tug. It's gentle. But as Micah is painting the picture here, oh, when God comes, this presence here, as he comes as prosecuting attorney and judge, well, no, it's much more the idea of the tsunami that's coming. It's this knockdown, drag out. Oh, there's this cloud of impending doom. Why? Because Israel, Judah, they're guilty. They know they're guilty. And so like rushing waters coming down, like fire melting wax, he's coming. God is coming and he's overwhelming and he's uncontainable. There's no stopping him. But why is he coming? Well, he's coming because of the sin, because of the sin of Jacob. Now, it's interesting here that as Micah's writing, he's referring to the sin of Jacob. 
Not Judah. He doesn't say Judah. He says Jacob. He's using this old language. Why? Because whenever you see old language like this in the, in the text, especially an old name that's representing a city, well, the prophets, they're trying to get you to remember. They're trying to get you to think back. I mean, that's what God's doing here through Micah, trying to get them to remember the covenant. The covenant that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jacob is often referred to as Judah when God wants the people to remember their past and remember where they came from. You know, sometimes the charge against God, you know, people, they've read the Old Testament. They say, oh man, the God of the Old Testament, he's like this legalistic God who's just waiting to kind of throw down the hammer and catch people in their sins so that he can exact these really horrific judgments. But understand, that, that, that's not the picture that Micah is painting at all. He, he's asking the people, remember Jacob. Re remember that this was a covenant. This wasn't just some kind of legalistic standard, just kind of, some kind of set of rules that, that God gave you. And now he's, okay, if you don't meet the letter of the law, you're toast. No, that, that's not what it was at all. It, it was a covenant that the people rejoiced in and they happily and eagerly entered into. There was this sense of joy and excitement and anticipation. I mean, that's what a covenant is. You eagerly enter into it. It's like the marriage covenant. I mean, my wife and I, Stephanie and I, when we got married, we were excited to get married. I mean, there was this joy to it. We look forward to that day. And now when we think back, we think about the joy of that day and the excitement of it. But, but what if we entered into that marriage covenant and then right then, like from that moment on, either I just sit there or Steph just sits there just waiting. Okay, you made this vow. You, you said, hey, you're going to love me in sickness and in health. You're going to love me no matter what. Now, hey, this act right here, that doesn't seem too loving. You just broke the covenant. I mean, what if we sat around like that, just waiting for that covenant to be broken, just waiting for this love not to be extended the way that we said we would? Because the fact is, we're all covenant violators. We violate the covenant of our own marriage all the time. But if we sat around just waiting, hey, you did not demonstrate love to me in this situation. You just broke everything you said. If we had that type of legalism, how do you think the marriage would work? Not too well. Because when, the, when you're in a covenant, you're not supposed to just simply focus on the rules of it all, but to remember the joy, the excitement, the relationship. And so that's what God is asking the people here to remember. Remember the relationship. Take the time to remember the relationship. See, God, he wasn't sitting around just waiting for the people to break the covenant. He didn't just nail them every time they did something wrong. I mean, they violated this covenant over and over and over again. But like a patient spouse, God, he's been patient. He's waited as Judah has sinned, as Israel has sinned. God has been patient, loving anyway. But there is a limit, isn't there? You can't break a covenant so flagrantly, so repeatedly, so just in a way that just brings about such heartbreak and hurt that something has to be done. And so God, he's reached that limit. And so he says, I must bring the case against you. 
You haven't repented. You haven't come back. You've, you've persisted in breaking the covenant and just flagrantly doing so. Now your heart's numb to it. You don't even realize the fact that you continue to break it. You continue to violate all these things that you so joyously and excitedly entered into. Why? Because you've forgotten the relationship. And so God, he brings this case against Israel and against Judah. And you can imagine just the silence falling over the people as this case is brought and the question is asked, is not this transgression of Jacob Samaria? I mean, I mean, is not the reason that there is these two kingdoms because of the fact that Israel has sinned, that Judah has sinned? Yeah, they all know it. That they know because of the way they acted, this kingdom is now in two, never the way it was intended. And is not the high place of Judah, Jerusalem? Yeah, they know that too. And as he's asking this, he's calling into question, okay, so what's happening in Samaria? What's happening in the northern kingdom, Israel? What's happening in Jerusalem, this, this high place, this place that's supposed to be a place of worship? What's happening there? And the implication is, yeah, God sees what's happening there. He knows what's happening there. He knows about the idolatry. He knows about the immorality. He knows about the injustice. He sees it all. And so therefore, God says, I'm going to make Samaria a pile of rubble. This is the judgment for their sins. Assyria is going to come. Samaria, Israel is going to be a place of rubble. And Micah's response to that, as he delivers this hard message, is mourning. Oh, and it's desperate mourning. He says, I'm going to lament, I'm going to wail, and I'm going to go around barefoot and naked, just stripped down with nothing. I'm going to howl like a, like a jackal. I'm going to mourn like an ostrich. Now, if you show up here and you're in some kind of mourning and you're barefoot and naked and you're howling and mourning like an ostrich, you know, we've got some good counselors that we can send you to. But in this case... Micah, what he's saying is not necessarily that he's completely naked, but that he's taken off his robes, that he's removed his sandals, that he's got nothing left but his undergarments, and he himself in his mourning becomes a picture for the northern kingdom Israel and at the same time the southern kingdom Judah, that, hey, you've got nothing left. I mean, once you've forgotten the relationship with God, once you've violated it so much, you've got nothing left in this wound. I mean, to destroy that relationship leaves this wound that's incurable, Micah says. You can't fix that. If you remove yourself from this relationship, there's nothing you can do. And so to get the attention of his audience so that they can feel this sense of mourning, he goes around simply in his undergarment saying, you've got nothing left. And then he calls out cities by name to illustrate what's happening. And he uses this play on words. Really, it's a pun of each city. And sometimes we completely miss this in the English, what Micah is doing. None of our English translations actually capture the heart of what Micah is doing. We get the truth of it, but we don't get the emotion 
of it. The, the, really, the, uh, the one who does it best is Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase called The Message. And he actually captures the feel because what he's doing is he's bringing out this play on words, these puns that Micah has created. And so what Micah does is he names a city and then he plays off of that city in just their desperation and their lament. I want you to hear, just listen as my, uh, to, the, to the message version of Micah chapter 1, 10 through 16. Eugene Peterson, he, he paraphrases it this way. Don't gossip about this in Telltown. Don't waste your tears. In Dustville, roll in the dust. In Alarmtown, the alarm is sounded. The citizens of Exitburg will never get out alive. Lament, last stand city. There is nothing in you left standing. The villagers of Bittertown wait in vain for sweet peace. Harsh judgment has come from God and entered Peace City. All you who live in Chariotville, get in your chariots for flight. You led the daughter of Zion into trusting not God, but chariots. Similar sins in Israel also got their start in you. Go ahead and give your goodbyes to Goodbyeville. Mirage Town beckoned but disappointed Israel's kings. Inheritance City has lost its inheritance. Glory, glory Town has seen its last of glory. Shave your heads in mourning over the loss of your precious towns. Go bald as a goose egg. They've gone into exile and aren't coming back. See, if you were to simply read that in the English translation, you miss the play on words that, that Micah is using. But Peterson, in his message, he kind of brings it out for us. And we don't just simply read the words and understand the truth. In this case, we're able to hear it almost as if the original hearers would have heard it. It begins to bring that emotion into us that, that all these people with their ears perked, waiting for Micah to mention their city. And then he does. And, and hey, you in Dustville, just go roll in the dust. You in Telltown, yeah, just gossip about what's going on. It, it's this play on words. It's, it's striking. And it cuts to the heart that there's nothing you can do. That it's over. There's no glory in Glory Town. The last man standing city. Oh, you're not going to be standing at all. And so Micah gives them this hard truth. But he does so while appealing to the emotions, causing their ears to perk up because it's often not just truth that causes people to make a decision, that causes people to, to uh, form some type of action. It's often truth coupled with emotion. And see, this is true of our God. He reaches the whole person. He uses his prophets to reach the whole person. This was the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. He came not just meeting spiritual needs, which he met, yes, but he met physical needs. He met emotional needs. He met psychological needs. He ministered to the whole person. And as Christians, this is what we do. We care about the whole person. We meet all types of needs. Why? Because this reflects the character of our God. So we care for the whole person. After the lament, really this type of funeral dirge over these cities, Micah, he talks about um, why that's the song. Why, why we have to sing these funeral dirges over all these cities. And why? It's because Judah too will be left in rubble. Not just Samaria, not just the northern kingdom. It's the southern kingdom as well. Because, why? Because the people there, they go to bed at night 
And they plot about the evil that they're going to do the next day. Oh, it's a sad place. And so they cry out to Micah, stop preaching. We don't want to hear anymore. You've said enough. And Micah, he says, all you want is a preacher who's going to come and just tell you what you want to hear. Just come and whisper to you about sweet wine and a strong drink. That's the kind of preaching you want to hear. And then almost on a dime, Micah switches in chapter 2 and he talks about the hope of something far better than sweet wine and strong drink. Something far better than just what they want to hear. He talks about God assembling the people of Judah and the remnant of Israel, gathering them all together and looking after them the way a shepherd tends to his flock and how God's going to care for them. That after all their sin and after their judgment that's coming, that they rightly earned, that there's still this place of hope. That God's not going to give up on them, that he wants to protect them, he wants to care for them, he wants to gather them in. And then in chapter 3, then we're invited back into the second court case. This one's a little more specific. I want to pop into the courtroom again with you. Let's check it out. Micah 3, verses 1 through 8, the prophet writes, And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You hate the good and love the evil who tear the skin from off my people and the flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. In this court case, God, he's going to put the leaders on trial. It's the political leaders and the religious leaders. They're the ones on trial now. And the political leaders, they're up first. These are the people who are supposed to restrain evil and at the same time promote good. And what are they guilty of? perpetuating evil, loving evil, hating good, the very opposite of what they're tasked to do. They are the ones creating the injustice. Yeah, you look at the themes of Amos and you look at the themes of Micah and they're very similar. And right here, Micah, he's talking about abuse, not treating people as people engaging in detestable acts cannibalism yeah you look at jeremiah and lamentations and you see that's just what happened this is how the leaders operated and it's an awful time and so god he says you know there's going to be a time when your leaders they're going to cry out to me i'm going to hide my face from them because of the way that they have led and then there are the priests you had the religious leaders they're not exempt uh if, if they get fed if people come and offer them food well then they're preaching peace 
If the people don't come and give them what they want, well, then they're waging a war against the people. And so night is coming to the priest, this time when the priests have no answers. See, there is something worse than not having food and drink. And it's not having a word from God. It's not knowing what God is saying. And so the people, they're going to be trying to make sense of everything going on. How is it the Assyrians are coming in and getting stronger? How is it that, that Israel and the northern kingdom is going away? What, what's going on over here? But the priests, they will have no answer. People will be asking, why evil? Why pain? Why did the Assyrians get stronger and we get weaker? Why? See, the question that the people were asking then, they're the same questions that people ask today. Why evil? Why pain? Why suffering? Why does it seem that sometimes the bad guys get ahead and the good guys are just left wallowing in the dust? Why does this happen? And so people in our rational minds, we try to come up with the best solutions that we can. And so you'll hear things like, well, you know, a little suffering, it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And, you know, there's going to be better days ahead. You've got to look for those better days. But, you know, when you zero in on the depths of depravity, when you really look at just the heartbreak and the suffering in this world, there gets to a place when you look at what somebody's gone through and you kind of shake your head and say, I, I can't make sense of that. I don't know why you have to go through all that. This seems like a little much. There's no good answer for that type of evil, for that type of suffering, for that type of heartbreak. And so the priests, they're there, but they have no answers. They have no vision. They have no word. The whole society, it's all corrupt. And the priests are saying, hey, praise God, he's with us. But no, he's not with them. He's not with them. They don't know what to say. You understand, the only answer to evil in our society, the only answer to the evil in the world and to the pain, to the suffering, and to the heartache is Genesis. It's the fall. It's the sin-cursed world that results as, that comes about as the result of the fall. But at the same time, there's God at work to reclaim his creation and all that was lost in the fall. And that's just what Micah is going to talk about next. After he scorches the political leaders and after he nails the religious leaders, then he talks about hope. But it's not going to come from political leaders. Hope is not going to come from religious leaders. Hope is going to come from God. And when God brings this hope, Micah says that he not only gathers Judah, that he will not only gather the remnant of Israel, but that he's going to gather people from all nations. And when he finally settles things, when God comes, he's going to bring such peace that people will take their weapons and they will turn them into garden utensils. You know, it's interesting, that verse in Micah chapter 4, verse 3, the second half of that verse is actually engraved on the UN building in New York City. The interesting thing, though, is they left off the first half of the verse. They left off who is going to cause the people to uh, want to turn their weapons into garden utensils. No, why? Because the UN is saying, this is what we're going to do. This is how demented they are. This is how delusional they are. Hey, we're the ones who's going to bring about this peace. We're the ones that's going to make it happen. Now, hey, praise God for any peacemaker, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, absolutely. 
But claiming to do things that only God can do is delusional and ultimately leads people to the wrong place. Only God is going to bring about perfect peace. Only he's going to do that. The UN, hey, it's great if they're promoting peace, but they're not going to bring about this peace. That's why we introduce people to the Prince of Peace. We, we introduce people to the God who can do what only he can do. And this is our task, introduce people to the Prince of Peace. We don't claim the glory for ourselves. It's all his. Then comes Micah 5. And in Micah 5, you get one of the most amazing messianic prophecies in the scripture. And it's especially uh, uh, popular at Christmas time. I want you to hear it and hear it in its context. Micah 5, 1 through 4, the prophet writes, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up into the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So Micah, he talks about the humiliation of the king. And you can imagine this, can't you? The king of the northern kingdom Israel. And here comes some Assyrian king. And he strikes this judge of Israel on the cheek. You can imagine the humiliation of that. Just being humiliated in such a way that someone will march right up to you and hit you right on the cheek. And in this context, uh, in this humiliation context, the whole idea has been of Jerusalem. It's Zion at the end of chapter 4. And so Zion, Jerusalem, and in Micah 5 too, though, he switches. He says, but I'm going to choose one from Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah. There's two Bethlehems, so he's being very specific. I'm going to choose one from this small town, this breadbasket of a town. That's what Bethlehem means. His origin will be from ancient days, from long ago, from the beginning of time. Micah, he's going to come along centuries later and he's going to say, this famous Christmas prophecy, Jesus fulfilled it. He's the one, he's the one who brings victory to a people who've suffered humiliation. And he brings it not from the big town of Jerusalem, but from these most humble of origins. See, sometimes the peace that we look for, it's not where we think we're going to find it. And this is how it is with Jesus. He brings this peace from the most humble of places. You know, it's interesting, Micah. He pulls us into this courtroom setting. He takes us to these various cases. There's this cloud just hanging over. This, there's a seriousness in the room. And as we watch Israel and Judah on trial, we can almost picture ourselves there, can't we? We can almost imagine God as the prosecuting attorney who's bringing the case against us and at the same time the judge over us. And just like Israel and Judah, we know we're guilty too. 
There's no lawyer out there who can get us off on these charges that we're guilty, that God sees all, he knows all, and our sin has condemned us. But the same one, the same prosecuting attorney, the same judge is also the one who's going to secure our victory from the jaws of defeat. That's what Micah's saying. He's the one. He's the one who, when Israel and Judah are as guilty as guilty can be, he's the one who rescues them. He's the one who's going to look after them. He's the one who's going to bring them back and gather them back and love them. But it's not just for them. It's for people of all nations that he gathers all of us together, together to be a people for him. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, that when the case is stacked against us because of our sin, because of what we've done, and rightly so, when we deserve judgment, you are our great rescuer, the one who secures victory on our behalf. God, may we walk in that victory. May we claim that victory, realize that victory. And that happens through a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. He whose origins are from long ago, yes, from ancient days, who was born in that small town and who now reigns. God, may we represent you well to others. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.